Welcome, everybody, to the Outside Edge, a podcast for extreme athletes and extreme people. We like to hit all the people that love to live on the lake and live the lake life and love to be around water as much as they possibly can. I'm your host, Dave Briscoe. And we are joined by our brand new producer, the man from Houston, Texas, my old SeaWorld buddy, Nick O'Donohoe. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. What's happening, Nick? What's yeah, going it's on going in good. Houston, Texas? Oh, it's uh, hot and been raining for like three days. Oh, that's so a It's nice me. being in the house doing all the chores that you don't want to do. Right on. It's perfect in Florida right now. It's, it always is 85 and sunny. So we, ha- we have a returning guest on today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've, you've heard him on the podcast before. He's a great buddy of mine, a legend in the industry. Started Moomba Boats back in 1987, started Gecko Boats, and also now CEO of brand new boat line coming out, Anthem, up in northern Minnesota. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark Overby. Hey, guys. What is happening? Hey, Dave, I just, I just came out of my igloo, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here again <laughs> with you today. And as always, I enjoy spending some time with you. And uh, Nick, it's great to meet you, too. Pleasure to meet you, sir. What uh, what is the the temperature up in Minnesota these days? Well, you wanted to have an extreme show. This is the right place to do that because here in Minnesota, the forecast calls for 80 degrees today. Now, whether we see it or not is remains to be seen. Oftentimes, you see the people on TV forecasting the weather, and they tell you what they think it's going to be, and then it's always followed by hysterical laughing. Right. <laughs> so, yet so, yesterday the high was mid 50s which was a heat wave here and when it's 50 you see people out running around in t-shirts and and shorts and i did go water skiing in 40 degree water oh was that your first uh, run of the year no i uh i froze a few weeks ago we had another heat wave it got to 60 but then it went down into the 30s and it snowed every day for a week after that so the the weather's crazy here so you got your slalom course all in and it's all ready to go already yeah so you'll you'll love this so went out thought hey you know what how, how hard can it be I'm a, I'm a fairly decent skier so i go out at hadn't been in a course since last september go out right. at 28 off and the balls are going by and i get to the other end i go wait what you said zo at, at what 65 miles an hour and <laughs> <laughs> it feels like you're starting all over again and then you oh, talk yeah. to guys like you who've been on the water all year and makes me very jealous yeah well I hear you, man. It's it's always tough that getting the first run back out when it's cold. You can't get your muscles to relax. You can't. And and I get it. The ball's zinging by. I went out and hit the course not long ago, and I don't know what happened. They were moving a lot faster than they used to. Yeah, my my memory of who I am and the kind of skier I was is definitely different than what I experienced yesterday. Right, right. So what's going on up there with masks? I know it's, I, I want to get into that first. I, down in Florida, you know, we have DeSantis, and he's been great. And, and uh, the, the masks are not as many people are wearing them. But I wonder when, when is somebody going to put their foot down and go, enough, enough with the damn mask. So what's going on in Minnesota? So I, I got to tell you a brief story about that. So I go to see my sister. She lives in, uh, she spends the winters in Florida, a beautiful place in Benina Springs. So I go down there. We're down there, I think, for just a few days back in February. And I, I'm, we're, we're eating breakfast one day, and I see this guy on TV, and he's like, we got to get back to business. We're going to open this place up. This is, this is bad for, for the economy. It's bad for human beings. we gotta, we got to get back to reality. And I'm thinking, These, that guy sounds like the nutcases in Minnesota on TV. And so I asked my sister, I go, who's that guy? She goes, that's our governor. That was the Samus. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I'm like, I love this. You go outside, people are living normal lives, they're getting on with business and, and their recreation and so on. And, and man, we just had such a wonderful time. Then you come back up here and, I, you know, I, in some cases I'm embarrassed to say I'm from Minnesota, although I'm, prou- I'm a proud Minnesotan. But, you know, we get these nutcases. Today we got a guy who's a kindergarten teacher as a governor and so everything that he does looks through the lens of what's good for kindergartners and then of course we had uh pro wrestlers we've had goofballs like gal franken and and the list is the, the list is long and so it really depends on who the crazy is in the governor's house and so right now um 
yeah, I mean, you're required to wear masks, but restaurants are open and you can go to Home Depot and run around and do what you want to do. But it's not like Florida, that's for sure. And, you know, as a guy, and I don't spend much time watching TV, but as a guy who's paying attention to what's going on a little bit on a world scale, you have places like Texas where I've been and Florida where I've been and Phoenix where I've been. And they sure seem to have a more normal life than what you have here. And yeah. uh, it's, it's pure politics. That's what I wonder, you know, I mean, because where is the line of making somebody wear a mask? I mean, there's no law out there that states that you have to have one on. And uh, I mean, the right to exercise your American freedom, uh, where's the line? You know, where's the line where you just say no? Yeah, I, one of Jeannie's friends went into a place the other day and she says, I have a medical pass that says I don't have to wear a mask. And nobody even looked at it. Like, they didn't even, they were just like, oh, okay. And they just kind of yeah. let it slide by. But I wonder how long it takes before people just absolutely put their foot down and go, all right, enough is enough. Well, Dave, you know, I know you and I love you. And you're, you are no stranger to diving into the pool of controversial subjects. And, and yeah. this is one. And yeah. so while you're in there swimming around, I... You know, I share the similar view because you, if you apply even just a modicum of logic to this, there's pretty soon you have the, you know, and I'm going down a slippery slope with you here because you end up with looking at the people that are crazy. And, and I drive around like everybody else does, and I see people by themselves in their cars wearing masks. Yeah. And I'm, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what is going on in that person's head that causes them to have to do that? And right. Then you have the people that are. I've seen this. I'm I'm uh, I'm riding my bike at a place where I go. It's a it's a it's down by the river bottom. So it's a wilderness area, and uh, I go riding by a guy, and I'm probably five feet away because the path is narrow, and he's hiking there. Well, he's wearing a mask, and I'm going by him, probably going 15 miles an hour, and he yells at me, "Put your mask on!" Oh, and I'm God. thinking to myself, "Holy cow!" Here's a guy out in the middle of nowhere. He's by himself. He's got his mask on, and I go whizzing by him. And then in that instant, you're thinking, or I'm thinking to myself, what's going through that guy's mind? Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's getting to that point here in Texas that people just, they don't care anymore. Half, half yeah, you mean, wear a mask, half aren't. You know, they just, they're to that point now where they're just like, you know what? I'm either going to get sick or I'm not going to get sick, or most of them have already taken their vaccination shots or they just whatever. And what's yeah. the what's the gym like now? I know that you you're still doing your pull ups on Fridays, right? Tuesdays and Fridays. Tuesdays and Fridays, like religion, baby. Yep. And Mark does. Uh, I know you do a minimum of two hundred pull ups usually on those days. And yeah, and still... the good news is I'm getting stronger as I get older. So, and I'm getting younger and better looking too. So <laughs> that that delusion that I'm living in is is still playing dividends. They must use cool mirrors in your gym. Make you feel that way. I love that. You know, you know, there are times in there I swear they have circus mirrors in there because I go and I look at myself and I'm like, that can't be me because that guy <laughs> sure looks like he's a lot fatter than I am. <laughs> that happens. They do that in some gyms on purpose. Shorter, shorter too. <laughs> you know, I, I, there's another question I've never asked you, and I don't know why, but what's your infatuation with helicopters? Where the hell does that come from? You know, I when I sold Gecko back in the roaring economy of 2008, I thought, you know what, I, I, I don't know where it comes from is a short answer. But, you know, I've, I, I've either been working from my house my entire life or been working in factories that are not close. In other words, I built boats in Fargo, North Dakota, and every time I needed to go there, it was a four-hour drive, driving 70 miles an hour, or factories in Missouri, or fine line factories in California, or wherever and I always thought you know my mind goes 100 miles an hour and I know yours does too mm -hmm. and I always thought you know if I could get from A to B much more quickly I could be a, a lot more effective and the other thing is that uh, whether you're helicopter skiing or taking helicopter rides on vacations like in Hawaii for example I always thought it was just it's just super cool and so you can buy a, a, an inexpensive piston helicopter for maybe even as low as a hundred thousand and so hey the boats i'm building today cost twice that so helicopter by right. that comparison is is dirt cheap so i thought hey I'll, I'll go through the training which i did got certified learned to hover and, and fly it and it's, it's really cool and then uh 
external economic factors when I sold Gecko and they stopped paying me resulted in an economic reversal and that shut down my helicopter uh, flying personally. However, I'm, I'm so like you did take classes. You, you did take some. Oh yeah, yeah. Classes. I was all set. I was I was fully indoctrinated. Had the needle in my arm. I'm, I'm ready to go. I want to buy one and finish it. It's cool. And and even today, Susie and I will be having dinner. I'll go. Oh, what is that? That's got to be an Airbus. No, it's a Huey. And then I'll say, hey, yeah, you know, in uh, in Vietnam, even those things taking shrapnel on the rotor would, you know, cause they could fly with the rotor doing what's called auto rotation. Those things would fly like ten miles. And so he's like, I'm so sick of hearing about helicopters. Well, that's cool. So anyway, hey, you know, you never know. But I also know of guys uh, that have been killed in helicopters, and the operating right. box is 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 not forgiving, and. You know, I'm also maybe I'm a hair smarter than I used to be, and I've had other planes die in plane or other friends die in plane crashes. And regardless of what sort of aircraft you're flying, you need to do it a lot so it becomes second nature. And even right. then, it's it's dangerous. So I, I I'll always take rides in helicopters whenever offered or I get a chance to pay for or whatever. But uh, whether or not I'm going to ever own one, I I don't know. Right, right. And that's I wanted to kind of segue that. So you you talked about Gecko a little bit. And you talked about um, how long you've been in the industry. One of the stories I love you telling is when you um, started your dealership. And basically, you were into the snow ski industry pretty deep. Uh, you were traveling all around the West, uh, roughing product, and you loved to water ski in the summer. And uh, isn't that kind of the main reason you started a dealership was to get a boat deal? You're talking about when I when when we started buying Supras? Yeah, in the Mini Tonka dealership. Yeah. You're talking about, so you're talking about how I we we started that dealership? Is that where you want to go? Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm involved in I'm I was a rep in the snow ski industry. I'm selling atomic skis and Oakley and some other really cool stuff. Lived and breathed that and and I and I still do. And I and I love doing it. And a guy named Al Klein, and we have always called him Uncle Al. Now keep in mind I'm in my twenties and uh, Uncle Al, who's the and at the time he's selling EP and EP was was like the happening brand. But he, and Al, I'm probably early twenties and Al is maybe fifty. So we saw him as our grandfather at that stage in life because you know right. how that works. So Supra comes out with the Supra Comp in the early eighties, and I'm like, oh man, that is that boat is so cool. That's got the style and everything. I gotta have that boat. So I call up Uncle Al and go, Al. I gotta have one of these boats. He goes, Mark, I can't sell you. You're not a dealer. I'm like, yeah, Al, come on, please. I need the good, good buddy deal. I mean, everybody knows how that deal works. Give me one. So, Al goes, can't do it. And I go, well, you don't even have a dealer up here. He goes, yeah, I know. It's really sad. I go, well, why don't I be the dealer? And he <laughs> goes, I go, what does it take to become a dealer? He goes, three boats. So I call up a good buddy of mine, and uh, he was also a rep in the snow ski business. And so we bought we bought three boats and we formed a dealership called Water Club West. And we, we rented space in the old Tonka Toys World Headquarters building on Lake Minnetonka. And wow. I remember back then you bought boats in, in truckloads because boats were at that time a super comp was maybe 24, 25,000 bucks. Right. And so New. that's bought- retail price. That, that's retail you're saying 24. Uh, that, well, de- dealer wholesale is in the low twenties, depending upon how how they're yeah. equipped. And of course, we always wanted nice trailers and some options. So they're, but they were probably in the high twenties retail, yeah. with totally loaded with everything on them. Sure. And so I remember, uh, and Steve and I are hardcore ski reps with very healthy ongoing uh, rep businesses. And so we bought some boats and we're using them. Man, these things are super fun and. And uh, we end up going to the Supra dealer meeting. And back then, dealer meetings were a huge uh, affair. And so I remember we go, we go to Callaway Gardens, and Steve and I are sitting there on the bus, and we're surrounded by all these dealers, and we don't know a soul. And right. Steve, Steve and I look at each other, and the saying was, last week I didn't know how to spell retailer, now I are one. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so... And keep in mind, we're in our twenties. We, you know, we didn't know any any better, but we we knew the wholesale side of another industry well. And so we go to the dealer meeting. We we suck it all up, and we're having a great time. And and anyway, where I'm going with this, and I think where what you wanted to highlight. Within a couple of years, we're selling over a hundred 
Supras a year on Lake wow. Minnetonka. On a and side that, you didn't, didn't even think you were getting into. Yeah, we didn't know what we didn't like. Well, is that good? I, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> and so, but I remember we were cocky young guys, and at that time, Mastercraft owned the business around here. I mean, if you wanted a towboat, it was a Mastercraft that had the cachet, the pro tours going on, and you know, Mastercraft was the answer. And I remember these guys, and these are Lake Minnetonka is where all the money is, and so people are landing their helicopters and driving their Mercedes into our lots and looking at these boats. And I remember in particular, guys would go, "Well." man, you know, your super comp is like 28 grand. That's at retail, let's say. And they go, you know, I can buy a, a new ProStar uh, 190 for 25 grand. And I remember looking at guys and going, yeah, but then you don't have Mastercraft. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I, I, you know, we just, we were, we were irreverent and did all sorts of crazy stuff. We were the first guys to put boats inside. You know, we already talked about the weather around here. Sure. The old Minnetonka, or sorry, the old Tonka Toys headquarters building was hundreds of thousands of square feet. And we just stuck everything inside because so we just thought everything it would be cool. Inside. You got yeah. every boat inside. Wow. We had every, we, you'd walk into our showroom. We had eight, eight boats on dollies on the floor. And, you know, you contrast that back then. You went to see boats in January, and you had to shovel the snow off of them. Right. Right. So, anyway, those those were some good days, and but keep in mind that was long before V drives. I remember also a couple of years later going to a super meeting when they they revealed a new boat. They're like, "This is gonna turn the industry on its ear," and right. people are like, "What is it?" It's like, "This is called a V drive." Yeah, and uh, so times have changed a little bit since then. And that so that yeah, when you started your, the dealership, that must have been in the early 80s right or mid 80s yeah. so i think the comp came out in like 81 and we yeah. immediately started the dealership and uh then i got married and moved to seattle in uh in 1987 right so, and, so, sold- and that's when moomba now uh, that's what i'd like to segue in from there is the, the moomba brand and you can't you brought that to america you brought that concept yeah so um through my uh, dealership experience and relationships with the guys at Supra, George Fowler was the CEO, and he and I became close buddies, and I, everybody loved George. And, and he's a super lovable guy, and he's super generous, and he's just he's really fun to be around. And, and I was a young guy, and he was a good mentor, and, and it was a good fit. And so I'm, I'm, I had an opportunity to, to take over Atomics, one of their more significant territories in the Northwest, and being a flatlander here in Minnesota, as a ski rep, you kind of aspired to having a real territory so when atomic offered me the northwest as a territory and moved to seattle i'm thinking man that's cool plus our weather is a little more consistent and i'll trade a 50 degree day in rain over minus 100 any day of the week so we moved to seattle but i kept in touch with george and i'm still a hardcore water sports guy and i'm watching the industry and that is when if you look at sales about through the early 80s Unit sales and towboats were roughly 2,500 to 3,000 units a year. But it started climbing. It starts climbing to 4,000, 5,000 units. And with it, wholesale pricing went up about 30% over a five-year period. So, and this is in 87? or this is Yeah, 80, so this is 87. Yeah. And so I'm looking at these statistics and thinking, holy cow, these boats are getting really expensive. <laughs> and of course, relative terms mean everything. Right. Um, but unit sales are going up. Wholesale uh, sales are going up. And so... I looked at that and said, holy cow, there's an opportunity for an inexpensive towboat. So I called George Fowler and, and he goes, hey, write a business plan and I'll meet you at the San Diego Boat Show in, in a couple weeks. So I did that. And that business plan was Moomba. And essentially it was for an entry level uh, boat that performed well, looked good, and uh, was reasonably priced. And, and so did that, did that all start from scratch? No. So George had a relationship with uh, a company in Australia called Lewis Boats. And Steve Parker owns Lewis Boats, and I think he still does say, great guy. Um, and I, that relationship with George and Steve was would ultimately was a rocky one, and that might be a separate discussion. But in any case, we licensed for the first boats uh, a Lewis Hull, brought it over and this was really just to expedite the process because to loft a new hull and start from scratch just takes a lot of time and takes a lot of expense versus hey we'll just take an existing hull and put a put a new deck on it so right the lewis boat comes over this is 19 probably 1980 
late 87, 88. And this is a direct drive inboard boat? Well, we made it that way, yes. It had an external rudder on it, and so we, we kept a number of things that were unique to the Lewis product. And keep in mind... Yeah, I'm, external I'm, rudder, I'm, a lot of people don't remember that, but the rudder actually, there was a box outside the back of the boat, and you could actually see the rudder arm over yeah. the platform. Yeah, so the, the rudder arm stuck through the back of the boat. There was a slot maybe an inch and a half tall and six or eight inches wide, and the rudder arm stuck through the, the back of the boat, and then two bearings held the rudder post. It was a long rudder post. Today's rudder posts are maybe four inches long or so. That yeah. one might have been 14 inches long, and it went through a plate, uh, like a trim plate that stuck through the bottom of the boat. So anyway, that boat comes over, and it gets developed in the garage of a friend of George's, George's. And so the whole thing got sanded down, a new deck was created, and so it was created outside of Supra. In other words, it wasn't done on Supra property. And when the plugs got done, then the plugs got moved over into Supra's property where they could build the molds. Simultaneous to this, uh, the guys at HO were great friends. and. I'm going up at night to meet with a guy named Scott Cook. And Scott Cook was the art director at HO at the time. And we started kicking around this whole branding concept for Moomba. And so Scott and I developed those that giant blocky letter style with a little script on it that, you know, I think they're, you still see, certainly the old boats have it. And, and to some degree, I think they use it in, on some models even today. Right. But it was unique at the time. And, you know, when you put me in charge of, this kind of stuff and I like bright colors and I like loudness or and more than maybe than today but if, if you're going to end up if you put me in charge you're going to end up with black boats red boats yellow boats yeah. purple yeah. boats with crazy looking interiors in it and to some degree I think that helped really position Moomba as a brand with some pizzazz and, and some different uh, attitude about it and so in 89 we got into production and started building them and yeah. so it was it was a single boat, the boomerang, and a nineteen foot closed bow boat. The thing just was a little rocket ship, performed really well. And retail price on the thing with the trailer was sixteen thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, and, and yeah. ready to go. Yeah, and that you really did change the industry then because I remember the the model that you had. You had brought in a, a model and she was tall. She was probably five eleven, five ten, and she's laying on the bow of that boat. She looked bigger than the damn boat. It was it was a who can, classic who, photo. Who can forget Colleen Barry? And so Tom King, world renowned marine photographer, great guy. We go to his house because we call him up. Hey Tom, we got we got to do some promotion for this boat, and it's crazy. And Tom, of course, is game. So we go down to his place down near where you are. We're on the Butler chain, mm -hmm. and a couple things I'll remember. Uh, to Tom's credit, he he he's a top-notch professional photographers then which means you start at 4 a.m so you got to be ready when the sun opens up so we're we're milling around his house getting ready and when the sun comes up we're walking by his fire pit and i noticed in the fire pit he's got a bunch of snakes i'm like holy cow what, what's going on here he goes yeah 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 i got a few water moccasins here i just i took care of them we're gonna burn them later i'm like <laughs> that's crazy so we go down to the dock and here's this gorgeous gal and Colleen was was a great sport and of course Tom's directing her and if you've ever been on that boat the gunnel is two inches wide and so you right. have this gal who's maybe close to six feet tall trying to balance on this gunnel and uh, we have some iconic photography and it's it's still I still get requests today and we did that poster and uh, I'll leave you with this so we did that poster it's very cool and we start passing them out at, at uh, boat shows and, and that kind of thing. And it's the kind of thing where you have mothers putting their hands over their kids' eyes <laughs> as they walk by the booth. So, it was a great anyway, photo. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up a great memory, yeah. Yeah, and those you kind of had the rally stripes going down the bow of that boat. It was all right. I mean, it was the – you had the gel. I think it was the first time I had ever seen the boat with a gel on the deck, the gel color. Yeah, and it was like a, a bright blue or a bright purple or whatever colors were hot in '87. You know, I think back on those times, and I'm far more introspective today for sure than I was then. And George, I think, got a certain fascination about standing back and going, 
watch Mark when he goes through the factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's he's finding a certain curiosity in entertainment when I'm like, well, of course the deck should be solid red. Of course it should be bright yellow. And how about a purple one with a green stripe? And right. then then you can see the, the production manager and the and the Jelko shop uh, foreman kind of looking to George going, is this for real? Are we, are we really doing this? And George is standing in the background going, have at it, boys. Do what he says. And awesome. You know, and that's why you look at those those initial Moombas. You can't find a white one very very frequently, but you can find a lot of solid red ones, solid black ones, solid green ones, and the colors weren't just muted colors. I'm I'm like, well, Ferrari's got a beautiful guards red, and right. you know, if you're gonna do yellow, you want you don't want some muted you know sunshine yellow. You want mustard yellow, and and black needs to be deep black, and so. Those things all seemed very obvious to me at the time, but at the time also, I'm sure I was really stirring the pot and and uh, didn't necessarily have the endorsement of every player, let's say. But it worked well, out for the brand. That's what take. That's what it takes, you know. And and now you you write on LinkedIn. I know that you write a lot of articles, and it, it goes back to some of the thought process that you went through in those days. And I know Nick, you've been reading some of the articles that Mark's written here lately. Absolutely. And, uh, is there anything that that captured you that you want? Uh, yeah, it's really great. I, when I got on LinkedIn, I started looking through some of the stuff that you had on there, and the pirate story really stuck out. It was very interesting. I'm like, how did he? Where did he read about that to be able to? You know, learning all about that was really cool. It was interesting to me. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I uh, I don't profess to. I, I, I do have a journalism degree, but never never really used it. But I, I think as I've grown older and tried to figure out how to make a difference in the marketplace, uh, I've realized that my my personal strengths have to do with strategy. I'm good at seeing around corners. I'm good at seeing a net result into the future. And in that process, um, how do you get there and, and what goes through the mind of any of anybody in business? What do, what do those steps look like? And so when you when you think about those steps and those strategies, you think about and you and you witness in the marketplace people that are doing it well and then you more frequently witness people that are failing miserably and it's out of points of frustration that I write each of those articles and Dave I know I've written a bunch and you're reading and probably going oh I know that guy yeah oh yeah I, Many I, of been there I think I've been involved with some of those stories <laughs> yeah. yeah the one that you wrote so, that your wife uh, kind of motivated you to write was pretty awesome too Thank you. I God bless you for for recognizing that. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm really keen on is, and and this is difficult for anybody in business, and that is to figure out who you are and what you want to be in the in the in, in as you represent yourself. What and that is expressed as a brand. So if you look at the difference between a brand and marketing, marketing is is going to bring the girl of your dreams before you, and your brand is what's going to make her say yes. There and you so, go. Nice. I. I I look at that and go, the Sir Francis Drake story responded or resonated with me because of a couple things. Number one, this guy knew who he was. He was a badass pirate, and as I said in the article, he had he, he knew what his mission was. Every day is like, we're going to get up. Every day, we're going to go harass the Spanish Navy. We're going to drive them nuts. We're going to make them miserable. We're gonna, then we're going to take all their stuff, and we're going to teach them who's boss. And a ship, much like a business, has to have everybody on board understanding the mission and the purpose. And he was a master of it. And he just whipped the Spanish Navy every chance they got and taught them who was boss and took all their stuff. And uh, um, so there's a great Monty Python skit about the English Navy at the time having glass bottom boats and that was so that they could see the Spanish Navy at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> right <laughs> and so anyway and, and the byproduct is when you go to school you, you what you learn about Sir Francis Drake is well he, he was the first guy to circumnavigate the globe well great that's a nice story and that's a nice feature on your resume but he was really just chasing the Spanish Navy all over the planet is how that happened right that was really that's awesome. crazy that's a great and that's story and if you go back to Moomba, so, I mean, you, you, you talk about George really gave you the reins to do whatever you wanted, and that was cool to come up with a concept. But then you had some dark days with George as well. 
where you know he he needed to borrow some money and i don't know how far you want to dive down into this but it's it's amazing how that morphed and changed your life yeah so uh i'll always love george and because i was living in seattle and we got going I was commuting between Seattle and Knoxville. I'd go to Knoxville for a week or two and then go back to Seattle where I had a young family and back and forth. And so when I lived with George, I got to know George really well. And I, he he'll, will always remain one of the most fond, I'll, I'll have some of the fondest memories of anybody, uh, that being of George. George is a creative guy, super creative guy. And like a lot of creative people involved in industries like the marine industry, which is not only cyclical, but it's seasonal. Uh, those are some those are some really tough scenarios to, to live with and as a result sometimes business is good and when business was good I've told you stories Dave that, that always bring a smile and that is George used to take his Bronco and a boat to Europe he, George loved Ford Broncos and instead of just flying over there and renting cars and shipping a boat over there George would use flying tigers and ship boats and his truck over there so he's comfortable driving around George is no, no stranger to spending money and I also believe that because of George's propensity to spend a lot of money and promote the brand, it also created a lot of hardship for Supra, and he needed to borrow money. and And uh, at the time, he he borrowed some money, maybe from an unsavory character. And George did what he thought he needed to do to keep the business alive, and and so on. And so, in that same time frame, the company, um, and I'm going to try and give you just the highlights. The company went public. And a lot of that money didn't get spent where it needed to get spent in terms of on product or product evolution. And there were some serious issues that evolved in, over maybe a couple year period with regard to uh, how product got built and whether or not it was streamlining production and how efficient it was and whether margins were sufficient to sustain it and, and so on. So anyway, we get to a day and keep in mind, again, you know, I'm in, I'm in my 20s, early 30s at this point by right. this time. And I always... As my wife would say, you're a ski rep for God's sakes. And so I, I didn't go to Wharton. I, I graduated from the school of hard knocks. Yeah, I got a college degree and whatever. But that's that's all that is is a jumping off point. So anyway, right. I'm, I'm, I'm building the story to a point where I'm sitting in a room and I and I had the luxury of being invited to board meetings and hanging around with some really smart people like the woman who was the company attorney. And when you're public, you need to probably have an attorney, your own corporate attorney on staff. Her right. name was Ella, great lady, love her, and uh, we socialized with her and, and really got to know her. And in any case, I remember a couple meetings that got really tense talking about the company future and we were running out of money and it wasn't being operated at, with great efficiency and I'm green at this point I mean I, I can in, in retrospect I can see very very clearly the whole Moomba concept how it needed to work what the product needed to look like and so on but the economics and strategies from an internal standpoint I today looking at my crystal ball probably back then I was a, I, I thought I knew what was going on but now, I gotta, how long it, it was fuzzy has how long of a run are we talking now? From 87, what year is it now we're talking? So uh, where, what I'm building up to is what happened in the final moments. Right. And this is just before Christmas time of 93. Okay, and so we're five years, five years, five years in six production. years. Yeah. And we're building lots of boats. Everything is going smoothly. Super's on a roll. Moomba's on a roll. Everybody's in love. This is cool. This is fun. But the company's not making any money. And right. so there have been some serious issues and taxes weren't being paid and they were, and they were all economic based. And in any case, we had this, this final board meeting where I was involved. Um, and I don't think at the time was planned to be a final board meeting, but it was one of those scenarios where within a very short period of time, and I'm talking about a, maybe a two week time period, George is forced out. There's a board meeting and, uh, it, there's a vote and George George got blindsided on this and right. and essentially the board it went a little bit like this at least to my recollection everybody said hey you know we got problems whatever George is a CEO there's a lack of confidence you know who who here uh, agrees that board that George should leave the board and be done as CEO and they wow. voted against him and so George walks into that meeting and 15 minutes later he walks out and he's basically out of a job and he never wow. saw it coming 
and it was the beginning of the end and it got worse uh as as a wind up there was a subsequent meeting there were several meetings but in another subsequent meeting we had a meeting george was there and george said you know i borrowed some money a few hundred thousand from a guy who says he needs the money by thursday which was like three days later oh. and and, and he, george is very upset and uh he uh he says you know if, if the guy doesn't get his money stuff is going to start burning down oh and everybody's boy. looking around going george what are you talking about who's who is this guy you know george <laughs> made he, he had not shared any of this and uh as a matter of efficiency what happened next is george ends up leaving tennessee under the cover of darkness and he loads what he can in his in his Bronco, and he drives to California, and he shows up there a week or two later, uh, ultimately going to work for Brendella Boats at the time. And, and now, at the time, do you know that you're going in and you still have a job, or I mean, you must? What's going yeah. through your head? Oh, I'm I'm like, hey, I you know the Moomba thing's on fire. This is this this is great. This is fun. This is cool. We're selling lots of boats, and ultimately, what happened is that the new guy comes in. And I, again, just as a matter of efficiency, I, I won't go into a deep, deep, long story, but he calls me up one day and I had never met him, but he had a very, uh, he had a reputation as a very, as a guy you didn't want to tangle with. He calls me up right. one day out of the blue and he goes, Mark, you know who this is? We need to have a meeting. And I go, what'd you have in mind? He goes, 15 minutes. So I get in my truck, drive over there and he goes, I'm taking over this country, this company, and you're out. And I go, hey, I need, you know, I, this is how I survive. I got all these orders in the system. We had probably 40, 50 orders at the time. He goes, no, Mark, you don't understand. You're done. You're out. And uh, so uh, I go home. I call my attorney, who is a friend of mine and uh, worked for one of the top firms in Minneapolis. He calls me up three days later. and He goes, you do not want to tangle with this guy. He goes, we can file a lawsuit and defend yourself and whatever as, as a guy that owns a, a stake in, in Moomba, which I did. Um, but he goes, Mark, as your attorney, I'm advising you to let it go. Wow. And so we packed up our stuff, uh, sold the house, and within six months, probably less than that, we were out of Tennessee. And uh, in that time frame, I developed the whole gecko concept. And so that's that's kind of how the Moomba thing, at least for me, ended. And uh, within six months, I was back in production with the gecko project and that's what i wanted to do so i wanted to segue quickly uh into gecko because i want to give you a chance to talk about your new product that is out now and so uh so moomba ends uh, you know abruptly you don't see it coming uh six years in things are going well boats are moving top of the world uh and then you start gecko and and gecko was kind of the same mentality as a moomba you know, it was a it was a basically a stripped boat that had a a, a cockpit, a steering wheel, and an engine to pull you, and yeah. uh, and you continued with that concept with Gecko, and how long did that run? So, uh, Rick Lee, the guy that had started Fine Line, which was Centurion, had expanded his capabilities in his Merced, California factory. He was building Taiga boats, which at that time they were no different than a. Centurion, hope, sorry Charlie, I didn't mean to offend you there. Um, <laughs> Charlie Pigeon, Charlie Pigeon, and and but God bless Charlie, brilliant marketing guy. And so Rick Lee calls me up after he heard about the Moomba thing. He goes, "Look, he goes, I want to be the General Motors of the boat business. I already figured out this contract boat building thing. Why don't you come to California and I'd love to build boats for you." So I did, and so that's how Gecko got started. We started building geckos uh, in early 1994. And in uh, fall of 94, we introduced the first geckos as 1995 model year boats, went to the water ski magazine test. Now, we had tweaked, we had developed a new hull design, and the thing worked phenomenally well. And we were number one in tracking, number one in top speed, number one in acceleration. The thing had phenomenal wakes, and it was because, to a large degree, we were water skiers, and we built what's called a running plug. And we'd build a boat, go test it, drive it until we figured out the wakes, the chine spray acceleration and all that. And the product was phenomenal. Now, Gecko was always more of a boutique, smaller builder, and I was financing the whole thing myself. And, and I figured that coming out of Moomba, I had already gone down this road once before. Um, and so it, it made it certainly a little easier. In retrospect, and, and you hear this from probably other people, if you look at what was required then, I was just naive. And I had this dream to do Gecko, and, and 
uh, I had a willing partner in Rick Lee, and it all just worked out great. That's awesome. That is awesome. And then, so that's what I want to segue into today. Uh, you know, you and I have been involved with helping design a product line for a while. We we uh, made a dirty deal with the devil, I'd like to say, at one point, getting a uh, a plug so that we could test a hull, and we ended up having to separate from uh, that business just because they couldn't build the product properly. Um, and that puts you into building boats completely in America now uh, with a company called Anthem. Right. And uh, let's segue into Anthem and and, uh, and the Karma. <laughs> what a great name. It, well, you, you know the derivation of that and the pain and suffering that you and I had endured. Um, and, you know, through through today's eyes, Mastercraft, Malibu, Nautique build pretty spectacular products. And who in their right mind would say to themselves, hey, I love this space and I want to build my own product and I'm going to make it look just like what the top three guys are already doing. Now, back in the day, Moomba Gecko days, you'd go to industry meetings and it would be Rick Lee from Centurion, Bob Elkima from Malibu, uh, Dave Jessen from Calabria. It would be Mike Brendel. All the founders in these businesses were all there. They're all in right. the room. And these guys all started business out of a certain level of passion. Well, today... Those same companies are all either publicly traded or owned by giant hedge funds and have huge war chests. And to do something that's identical, essentially, is, and by that I mean a fiberglass boat with the same windshield, the same power plant, the same vinyl, the same dashboard, and so on, to me is a uh, is crazy and, yeah. and a wicked expense. And I don't know how you could possibly think you could even get a foothold when there are already three players trying to kill each other over roughly 11,000 units. Yes, and it's, so, the, it's the old insanity, uh, Einstein's insanity theory. Right. Doing something's the same over and over again, expecting a different result. Yeah, so with Anthem, I, it's like, hey, I still love this space, and maybe it goes back to what my wife said, you're a ski rep, for God's sakes. And maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the world, and we're all getting to the age where our friends are retiring, and I'm starting something new, and I know you <laughs> are. you got some new, good things going, but we're, we have the luxury of pursue, pursuing our passions. And so with Anthem... We wanted to do something that was totally badass, but totally different. This boat is made out of aluminum. It's built in a in a factory that's a 125-year-old shipyard that today builds military products and really cool stuff for commercial applications, fire applications, rescue applications, uh, Army, Navy products. And, and they have technologies, because they're in the shipbuilding space, that almost none of the tow sports technology, uh, that technology doesn't exist to a large degree in the tow sports segment. So we've got this product that's really cool. And taking a page out of Malibu's book, we have three patents that are utility patents that are filed and well underway. We expect to have them approved in the next few weeks, if not the next couple of months, that really separates this product. And so we want to make sure that this is not a Me Too product. And you know we've developed marketing slogans similar to like uh, Anthem has one, one saying that, you know that we can and the, well I'll, I'll i'll say it like this with anthem uh we have a saying that that uh no no fiberglass boat owner will ever say but every anthem owner will say and that is hang on while i drive this boat onto the rock pile right Th those words would cause any fiberglass boat owner to shudder meanwhile with anthem you can drive onto the rock pile all day long because we've got a military grade construction process out of heavy gauge aluminum so you know i i don't it, it's it's a little bit like the Ferrari Lamborghini thing. These are high-end luxury toys, and I doubt that somebody who's a hardcore Mastercraft person, for example, would look at this and go, "Well, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna certainly abandon what I thought was awesome and do this." They might, but this I think really speaks to that person that wants a uh, military-grade work of art that you can surf behind and has a level of comfort like a pontoon boat, and so. We're creating a new space, I guess, essentially. Well. Right, and that's what I love about it. I mean, you're right back to your concepts in your 20s with taking the Moomba down a different path that nobody else had done. And now, you know, a couple of the things that are cool about this boat is it's got a bow that actually hydraulically opens into the water. So if you had a dog swimming off the boat, he could theoretically walk right up the stairs of the bow of this boat. And, you know, there's one unique thing that nobody's ever done before. 
I wonder yeah. if we just get the same model. What's that model doing these days? Maybe we could get her on the steps. Well, you brought up Colleen Berry. I actually Googled her and I'm like, hey, what do you, what do you suppose she's doing? You, you put her back to work. I'm sure she looks the same, wouldn't she? Right. Probably. <laughs> she does. So. There are still pictures on the internet of her right now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that whole landing craft thing, you don't have to look very far before you come up with uh, all the, the Wikipedia stuff about the Higgins World War II landing craft with the gate that opens. So, right. Did we invent something? And Dave, you know, you were always a tremendous inspiration on, on all these projects. And so, you know, we've talked about some of this stuff. But when I saw that and I saw it in other applications, I'm thinking, good Lord, we're, we're, we are water people. We like spending right. the day in the lake. And I, if you're like me and you go out when, it's, when it is warm and you can swim, you swim off the swim platform. And if you swim around your boat, you're doing your best. If you can reach the rub rail to stick your fingernails in the rub rail to hang on. Yeah. Or you end up swimming back to the swim platform. And so opening up the entire front end of this boat has been revolutionary because it's big, it's wide, the platform is totally powered, it'll, it'll, it'll raise a thousand pounds and uh, you can pull up to the beach, the trailer, the dock and lower it and open it up and people in a wheelchair can get in and out, your dog can get in and out. Yeah, and, it's a cool concept. It's a yeah, when my family concept. was out, they, they prefer to swim off the front than the back. Right. Right. And then it's all one level on the floor. So you're not, it, it does kind of feel pontoonish because you're all one level. It's easy to get on and off and the doors from the side. And, yeah. Uh, so this, this is a, this is a patent we're in hot pursuit of, and we call it the Anthem Aura concept. And, and again, you and I driving around on your pontoon all over the lake and yet being power sports guys and guys that are hardcore into, uh, tow sports boats and so on and and you look at the convenience of a pontoon and you go holy cow you, this this is this is the way it's got to be and so with this boat we did we just essentially we copied that and said you know if you look at getting in and out of a tow sports boat what are you doing you're you're wrestling climbing down in yeah power on the side you're trying to fumble your way in off the bow and or at the back you're going to have to crawl up and over the the all the upholstery in the engine box and my mother she loves to go boating but she's 85 years old and yeah. she's not easily doing any of that and so with this boat the front end opens nice big wide walkway you can walk from all the way to the front out the back it's got a low step over onto the swim platform which is yeah almost at the same level as the floor in the boat and and then of course with the doors on the side you don't have to worry about what side of the dock to pull up on it's it's it just it's the user friendliness part of it that uh is is so cool and, and you're not worried about scratching up your gel coat you know you're not you're not worried about your pristine gel <laughs> well so i'm in the i'm in the shipyard one day with our head engineer jeremy the guy's brilliant and we're, we're looking at rub rails because the the boat number one had this commercial grade fire boat big fat plastic rub rail which worked totally functional and then we looked at how they're building the boat and thought you know what if we just made a giant fat aluminum rub rail and stuck that on the side of the boat? So we did, and it's called a shipyard rub rail. And it's one of those things where if you have a new tow sports boat, you always cringe pulling up to the dock or your trailer, whatever you're looking for, nails, bolts, whatever, is the dock gonna damage my boat? In our boat, you can have a belly full of margaritas, pull up to the dock and go, <laughs> well, I hope I didn't hurt your dock <laughs> because you're not gonna hurt the boat any. That's perfect. And then in the ballast, no ballast pumps, uh, completely drained. Don't have to worry about invasive species. Yeah, this is a cool deal. So obviously the biggest bugaboo for any boat owner or boat builder in this space is ballast. It's a nightmare. You got to have pumps. You got to have sacks or tanks. You got all the plumbing. You got electrical systems that don't overwhelm your your alternator and available power system. It, it's it, it is a headache. And there's not one boat builder out there that has figured out how to address this. They're all using the same system more or less, and they're all using right. the same plumbing pumps, whatever. And we wanted to sidestep that. And because of my involvement and and guy and your involvement and other aspects of the sport, we're aware of things like the transportation of invasive species. We're aware of legislation that's trying to shut down our category. And so uh, through the collaboration of some other really intelligent guys, we and, and using a Coca-Cola and a straw and thinking about when you're a little kid and you put your thumb over the straw and you pull a, the straw out and you go, look at that, the Coke is trapped in the straw. That is, that is the physics principle behind our system. Essentially, we've got 
three independent tanks. They're fabricated into the construction of the boat. There's an open hole. It's about three inches in diameter. There's no seal. There's no gate. There's no nothing. It stays open, and the tanks are below the waterline. And then we've got a smart valve at the top. You open the smart valve. It lets the air out of the tank. The tank floods. You close the smart valve, just like putting your thumb over the top of the straw, and you can drive around all day long, and the, the water stays in the tank. Yeah, now, until you release that valve, and then it just floods out or just drains out of the tank. Yeah, and so it's the, the, the filling and draining takes roughly a couple of minutes. And other than the smart valve, you just you got a tank and, and air vents. And the thing drains completely. And even if you forget to drain it, if you drive your boat onto the trailer, as soon as you pull the trailer out of the water, the whole system drains all by itself. You don't need to do anything. And it drains completely and it's dry. So it's it tackles the invasive species transportation issue. It's easily inspected. You don't have to winterize it. Um, it's, it's a really cool system. And, it's a great uh, system. And I, so I imagine you, you're beefing up the trailer a little bit to handle that weight. If it does come out full, the trailer well, handle it. Taking a page out of your book and believing that a trailer is more than a ride to, your, to the lake for your boat, uh, we don't skimp on trailers. We want people to look at the trailer and go, that is a nice trailer. Right. So our the only options really on our trailer is do you want a spare and – do you want 15 or 18 inch wheels? We've checked all the boxes. We've got the heavy duty awesome. axles and and all the right equipment on it, so that we've simplified the process, so that anybody buying one of our boats doesn't have to worry about breaking down in the middle of nowhere because the manufacturer saved five bucks on something. Such a cool concept. And so uh, let's let everybody know that the boats are available. I know dealers are starting to take boats now, and, and uh, people can find let everybody know how they find Anthem. You can go to anthem.am, A-N-T-H-E-M.am, or Google Anthem Boats, or you can go to anthemboats.com, and uh, you'll 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 get an eyeful. It's very cool stuff. That's awesome, and they're great surf wakes and wakeboard wakes, and everything you want to do behind them is it's uh, it's available. You got it. It's it's the ultimate fusion of the comfort and convenience of a pontoon with the top end performance of a surf boat. Right on. Well, that is awesome. Mark, as always, you're always an inspiration to talk to, and we love having you on the podcast. You're always a, a breath of fresh air in the industry, and uh, I look forward to what you're going to be into next, as, as always. You've done so much since 1987, and uh, you, it, it's always awesome to have you on the, on the cast and see what you're up to now. Hey, Dave, I, I, a couple Thank you. Hey, I, I just want to leave you with a couple of things. Number one is you're a great friend, and I love you, and I really appreciate this opportunity to tell the story, and I appreciate your passion, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and talking with you again soon. And Nick, God bless you. Thanks for your help and your time this morning. Pleasure. Great morning. I love it. Right on, guys. Well, on behalf of Nick, I am Dave Briscoe. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, share, like. Keep this going, and we'll keep it going for you. I do have a YouTube channel up as well right now, Dave Briscoe, the Wakeboard Coach. You can see all the YouTube videos there. And until next time, we will see you on the Outside Edge.